for Christmas in college, 2005, he gifts me this piece of land. And before the first of the year, he had already spoken with his tax accountant who told him that he can't give it to me for free. I have to pay a hundred bucks. So I was a college student. I was a, a server. I was trying to pay for books and rent and all this. And I was like, dad, like what kind of present is this? I have to pay a hundred bucks. How am I going to get the hundred bucks? And so it partially felt cool that I owned a piece of America. And on the other hand, I was like, what do I do with this piece? Of la- what is it going to do for me? You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how's it going? Going good. How about you? Going good over there in Oakland? Good. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> hey, I was going to ask you. Speaking of Oakland, how you know? I was thinking back because of this interview that we had today. What was the thing for you that made you realize or decide on investing in multifamily? Why was that an asset class that was something interesting to you? You know. Funny fact about us in our real estate investing history, we've actually never bought a single family home. Oh, okay. So the very first one we bought was a duplex. We started with a duplex, then went to another duplex, continued house hacking for several years, um, multiple duplexes, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, (laughs) all duplexes. And then after all those duplexes, we said, okay, well, maybe we could do something bigger. So then we went to a sixplex and an eightplex. And then, you know, it was just with each one, we were like, it's not enough. It's not enough. We want to keep scaling more economies of scale because the Mm -hmm. bigger you go, the more you can take advantage. Because we were realizing with a duplex, you have one roof. Mm -hmm. With a single family, you have one roof. Mm -hmm. With an eightplex, you have one roof. Mm -hmm. Why not just go bigger? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's one of our favorite parts about investing in now in these larger multifamily is that you really get that economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about you? What yeah. was it about multifamily for you? I mean, totally the same. I think for me, I started off in single family, but it was, I think I might've heard it on a podcast or something, but this idea of, um, you know, being able to hedge against any vacancy. And that was like a big thing for me because as I was buying these single family homes, I kept like biting my nails thinking, oh my gosh, like if this person moves out, I'm in, I'm in a bit of trouble because all of a sudden my income went from whatever it was to zero, literally like overnight, like zero, not even like, you know, you get 50% of that income or 75% of that income, but nothing, you don't get anything. And then you have to go in and you've got to, you know, do your renovations and upgrade it and get it back on market. And it just kills your bottom line. And it was in that moment that I realized maybe getting into multifamily where you've got, you know, whatever, even as something as small as a six unit or as large as the 300 units, like the ones that we buy when, you know, one or two people moves out, it's not that big of a hit. Now in a six unit, obviously Mm -hmm. it's going to hit harder than it would in a 200 unit. But that was sort of that like mindset shift that I had when I realized that, you know, in single family homes, there's so much risk in terms of occupancy. And that's one of the biggest ways that we are able to maintain our bottom line is through having a high occupancy. And so if you're buying these properties where you only have one tenant, like my goodness, it'll put you (laughs) in a big situation if that person leaves. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of for me how I got turned onto it. But it was really interesting to hear um, our guest story today. Yeah. And it's it's so funny hearing your story and my story about how we each sort of felt that multifamily was better, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have like a like concrete like data that we were looking at Mm -hmm. to prove like multifamily is better than all these other asset classes. We were just like, it seems to be working. Maybe I'll do another one. Okay, Mm -hmm. that seems to be working. I'll keep going. And what was really cool and eye-opening about what we talked about with today's guest, who is Adam Adams. He's the founder of realbluespruce.com or um, Blue Spruce Holdings and also host of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. So Adam um, brought up something called the SHARP Ratio. 
And with that ratio, and he'll explain it in the episode, so definitely listen for that piece. Basically, that data proves or that shows with concrete data that multifamily supersedes the stock market and other asset classes, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a good episode. And he just went into so many other golden nuggets about marketing and branding and all kinds of good stuff. So he's he's the king at all of that stuff. So it's definitely a good one. Yeah, we've known Adam for quite some time and he's everywhere. He's always sharing his knowledge and helping other people. So for our listeners out there, you're going to love this episode. Here it is, our conversation with Adam Adams. Adam, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. And thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited. Absolutely. Now, Adam, I want to start first with your podcast, or rather the title of your podcast, The Creative Real Estate Podcast. Now, when most people think of real estate, they probably think that creativity is the farthest thing from real estate. So tell us more about that and how you came up with that title. I mean, to play devil's advocate, isn't real estate investing just, you know, buying a rental property, running some numbers, finding a tenant, and then collecting rent checks? I mean, what's so creative about it? That is real estate investing, and there's a lot of other real estate investing. I think of creativity not just as some people are saying, oh, I get seller finances, so I'm creative. But that's the only thing they do. All they do is seller finance and somebody else uh, does apartment syndications. And so that's all they do is raise money by deals. Uh, All of these things are creative when you think of them like we are creating a deal. Uh, There was a day that that I wanted to buy a multimillion apartment. I had never done it before. And instead of saying I can't, I just said, how can I? How can I? And that's when, when you ask that question is when you start to think of creativity, if you're creating a deal. So how can I find a way to maybe run the property, but raise equity from multiple other people just at 50 or a hundred thousand at a time in order to close my first multimillion apartment community. If once you figure that out, that's the creative side. And I always look at it like if you're really going to be creative, you're going to be like a handyman who has like a carpet stretcher, who has a hammer, who has a saw, who has all of these different things. Then you have somebody else who only has a hammer and hammers like fix and flip. And they're just trying to bang things that need to be screwed in or need to be sawed apart. And so when you can be creative is when you can think outside the box, outside of what you have in front of you and you start to create a a win-win that works for you and that other person. And I felt at the time there literally was no real estate podcast that had anything to do with creativity. And so, yeah, my take on it is just being able to create win-wins with other people to uh, solve problems. What's the most creative story that you've ever had a guest tell you on your show? For real estate. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, th- one of my questions is what's your most creative deal? Mm-hmm. And I always thought I was pretty creative. So I have some good ones, but other people come up with better ones. Um, Jay Scott had a really good one. Dave Van Horn. Let me tell you, can I tell you just a brief about Dave Van Horn? Yes. And if you guys want to listen to it, you go to our podcast, Creative Real Estate Podcast. It's around episode 30. Uh, give or take like 15, uh, but it's, it's right there toward the beginning of out of 350 podcasts. It's right near the first 10%. So Dave Van Horn jumps on and I was like, what's the most creative deal? And he said, well, this is something that I've done multiple times and I've done, I actually did with my son, he says, who was going to college mm-hmm. and the son wanted to purchase like a car and some other things. And the son said to dad, Dave Van Horn, something like, Hey dad, how am I going to do this? This is how much money I have. I've saved all this. And Dave goes, you saved all that money. He goes, yes. And I don't know what to do with it. And Dave is a note person. Mm -hmm. He buys notes. (laughs) So what he did is he, he actually purchased, I think it was a performing note. So there's performing and non-performing, but uh, he purchased, I think a performing note for that amount of money, it more than paid for a car payment. And so instead of just 
paying out to buy this car and having a depreciating asset, he paid for a note that paid him more than the car payment amount. And by the time that the car is completely paid off, the note is worth more. Oh my uh, God. He's, he's continuing to get cash flow. So that was one that I was like, huh, I never really thought of it like that. So that lot of, is- a lot of lease options, a lot of subject twos, but I've really enjoyed Dave Van Horn's story. And that right there is like the power of what we do and how different facets of real estate can, you know, help you achieve things that is like kind of like mind blowing. Like what? Like you're going to get this car for free. And then the instrument that you use to pay for that car is then going to be worth more. Like it's so like people don't even know that this kind of stuff like exists to even get creative around it. And that's the thing that is so inspiring, um, you know, to meet people in the industry who are doing different and cool things like that. So love that story. Yeah. So take us back. So now you're, we're currently, you said you've done 350 episodes. So you've been doing this for a while, but something must've caused you to really start having these conversations. So take us back to the beginning, you know, when did you really get into real estate investing and why? And then what led to then the podcast? I'm one of the only people that could ever say that I got into real estate investing reluctantly. So my why is very interesting. So I got in in 2005 myself. My dad, growing up, we owned, like I didn't personally own them, but we own commercial self-storage units, apartment buildings, land, single family, condos. Uh, We did tax deeds. And so I I did that when I was in high school. When I was in junior high, he was trying to get me to like read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and play the game cash flow. So that's really how I was getting started. And my dad was like, you gotta, he he wanted me to read that book. And then what was the other one? It was, um, it was called, uh, Richest Man in Babylon. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, mm-hmm. you got to read these books and because you got to save 10% and you got to invest 10% and you've got to make your money work for you. And yeah. you work so hard for your $1 an hour. We had a farm and I got paid $1 per hour. <laughs> and uh, that's he, manually. He, yeah, he that's a hustle me, right there. <laughs> he wanted me to save like 10% and put 10% to charity and put 10% to oh all of these random things. And I'm like, at the end of this, I'll have 60 cents. And like, <laughs> even that was a candy bar back then. And I just, I felt like I needed the whole dollar. So I, I didn't listen to him. And I always was thinking like, this guy is this hocus pocus, hokey dokey, weird, <laughs> like whatever. And maybe when I get old and boring, I'll care about mm-hmm. investing. And um, man, he was just really trying to talk me into this. And it was something that my horse blinders weren't letting me see. So he purchased a tax deed, a piece of land. It must have been worth just a couple of thousand, but he was able to get it for a hundred bucks. And for Christmas in college, 2005, he gifts me this piece of land. And before the first of the year, he had already spoken with his tax accountant who told him that he can't give it to me for free. I have to pay a hundred bucks. So I was a college student. I was a, a server. I was trying to pay for books and rent and all this. And I was like, dad, like what kind of present is this? I have to pay a hundred bucks. How am I going to get the hundred bucks? And so it partially felt cool that I owned a piece of America. And on the other hand, I was like, what do I do with this piece of land? What is it going to do for me? But two years later, they announced that they were going to bring in, um, uh, water to the cabin lots and electricity to the cabin lots and the value skyrocketed and I got tons of offers for that piece of land, Aspen Hills Owners Association, lot number 33 in Fairview (laughs) County, Utah. Um, I got all these offers for it and I ended up selling it and I made more on that one sell than I had ever made in an entire year of work of bartending. And I was like, what in the heck? So I was going to school for music education and I was looking at all of my teachers' salaries, what I was going to be doing. And I was like, that's like two deals and I've already made 
more mm -hmm. than a whole year of a teacher salary. Now, I still love teaching, so I have the podcast and other things like that, but that's really how I started. And in 2007, when I sold it, I read the book finally, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It told me that you got to have a business and you got to invest your money passively somehow. And so I started a handyman company and grew it to 13 employees. And I was doing really well financially. And I was managing apartments and just kind of learning how to manage apartments. And at the same time, I was just trying to get get my money ready to start buying apartments because so I learned something interesting. And I don't know if you both know this or not, or if the listener knows it, but Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, he didn't make his money in single family. He skipped it. He was doing his business. He had a wallet business and then he had another business and then he had a cash flow business. But while he was doing this, he was investing his money in apartment communities, not single family. So most people say he's a real estate person, so I got to buy single family. I learned that. And so my only thing was I got to do multifamily. So and anyway, that was a long story to come up to 2008 when I bought my first apartment and I rode the crash down for three years and it was rough, but you know, eventually after feeling what a crash felt like and doing a bunch of flips and all this kind of stuff, lately I've been really focused on apartment syndication. So it's almost like that Christmas gift, but magnified, right? So like you got that Christmas gift from your dad and then all of a sudden you were like, oh my gosh, what is this? I don't know what, to, I have to put more money into it. What is this, right? And then oh my gosh, you're like, the tax bill came, the tax bill came yeah, oh. like a few months later and it was like 150 bucks or something. And I was uh, like, dad, what is this? I didn't do anything. Oh my and he's God. like, that's your tax bill, son. Yeah. And I was like, well, do I have to pay it? He's like, of course you have to pay it. Yeah. And I was like, what? The, the gift that keeps on taking? Yeah, yeah. Oh that's right. So funny. That's so funny. So it's like, you know, it's like that. But then when you then went on to invest in your first apartment, it's almost like that, but magnified. You, you're getting into this and then the economy was going down and you're like, come on. But I'm assuming that because you had seen the light at the end of the tunnel with that tax deed and you had had this experience, you had your handyman business, you were more in the real estate game. At this point, you probably knew that even though it wasn't playing out maybe exactly as you expected, that there would be a light at the end of the tunnel. I did, but I also ran with my tail between my legs for a couple of years before <laughs> 2015 when I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Like, I feel like it's the moment at which you see the money. It's like, show me the money. And the moment you see the money is, or the value or the value creation or the ability to sell it for double what you paid is the moment that the light bulb goes on and you're like, oh my gosh, whatever, I need to know more about whatever this is and get into it, whatever you want to call it, whether it's real estate investing or investing or whatever, financial freedom, whatever you want to call it, I need to learn more about this and immerse myself in this. And I feel like that was the case for you too. It was like the moment that you sold that land and you double, you know, you doubled the value and all of that. It's like crazy, you know, and that's when you're like, aha, this is yeah. what I want. now I want to read the book. Now I want to learn more about this, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess another question that we always ask a lot of our guests who have children is what are some of the things that you're teaching your kids? Because you have older kids now, so they're eight and 12. So what are some things that you're teaching them? Because I know I see you on Facebook and you're always dropping all kinds of like, you know, bombs about like marketing and real estate investing. And you're just all over the place sharing so much value with everyone. So I can only imagine what it's like being one of your children and how much they must be getting from you on a daily basis. So please share with me and Annie and our listeners, like what are some strategies? Because my kids, my oldest is eight. And so I have eight, seven and four. So I have everything ahead of me, what you've maybe already done in the last couple of years. So share some insight on that. Oh boy. Well, number, number one, I've seen people that teach their kids better than I do. And I feel like every child has a different level of maturity. Mm -hmm. And I also think that gender plays a good role in that. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not speaking badly about anyone uh -huh. or, or males in general. <laughs> um, I try to teach my kids a lot of things. They're both boys, almost 12 years old. From the time we're recording this, he'll be 12 in less than a month. And then an eight-year-old. 
so really the things that I really try to teach my kids right now today is more about honesty and integrity and then getting out of their comfort zone. Mm, so I haven't been teaching them to, so we, we do have allowance. We do have, you know, they pay money. And so like if the kids come to me at, and we're at the grocery store and one of them says, can I have this? I usually just say, do you have that amount of money? And will you pay me when we get to the house? Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, that's what I do about money right now. They have some and they end up spending it, but I think I'm afraid to be my dad and a little bit overbearing. But the things that matter most to me is these three things, honesty, integrity, and uh, being able to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So if one of them hits the other kid, which happens sometimes when you have boys, <laughs> um, I and they're trying to say it was an accident or something. Uh-huh. I just I get real, uh, real. I get really real with them, mm-hmm. and I just say, look, I all I need is for you to know that you can tell me the whole truth. Yeah. And know that. I care more that you are telling me the truth than I care about what happened here. Yeah. You guys are going to get along. You guys are going to do this. And I always say, if you hit your brother, do I still love you? Uh, this, this is what I was saying when they were two years old. I don't mm-hmm. say it as, as much now, but they're like, yes, you always love me no matter Aww. what. So, um, so it's the honesty, it's the integrity. Um, yeah. Sometimes one of the kids, they're at the age around phones and stuff. And one of them bought a game without telling me one of them trying to bring a game to the bedroom, like at night. And I was like, what's behind your back? He goes, nothing. And I was like, look, (laughs) I care more about you just being honest than I do about what you're doing. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I had the phone. I didn't want you to get mad. So um, (laughs) I want them to know that how that feels when you just kind of come clean with something. I Mm -hmm. want them to know what that feels like. And then the third thing that I was saying is getting out of their comfort zone. Yeah. And so how I usually do that is I host like a ton of events, Uh a lot of meetups and even like recently I had a conference and my younger son really wanted to come to the conference on a Saturday. Uh And when he came, I just randomly just said, Hey, do you want to go on stage? And Uh when he said no, Uh he's like, no, no, no way. When he said no, it just, it made me feel like, Hey, this is a fear for him. Uh There's 617 people there and he's fearful to get in front of them. And I'm shy myself, Uh but I have a podcast and I host conferences Uh and I just had to get over it to be able to achieve. Right. Yeah. So I said to him, I said, if I give you $5, will you get on stage? (laughs) Now I didn't even care personally if he got in stage, but when he said that he, he was afraid to, it made me think, let's try to push these. Mm -hmm. So he ended up getting on the stage in front of 600 plus people and at first he was really timid, uh-huh. but at the end, you couldn't get the mic away uh, from him. He wanted, he was, he wanted to tell on daddy for everything that I had ever done. Oh, dad, dad told me he was going to give me $2 for this thing. And he never did. And I was yeah. like, do you have to say that in front of people? I love so, that. Um, anyway, it was, it was, it was really good. And it's all sorts of experiences, but those are the real three things that I try to teach them. That, and if I can say, just cause we're on this subject. One of my kids is a drummer. The mm-hmm. older one is a drummer. He's been in, in, in drums since he was four years old. He's incredible. His drum teacher has dozens of students, and he says that Johnny is the most technical uh, student that he has. He can sight read like crazy. And that's something that between us uh, and, and grandma, we are really passionate to just kind of push him in that direction. So he continues to develop. So he's had weekly Sunday lessons for like eight years now. Oh my gosh. Wow. Must be a loud house. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I don't know if I'd let my kids become drummers. I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that that is so that is so cool. And you know, as somebody who grew up with music as well, and I'm sure you did as well, because you mentioned you were in music education. I had started playing piano when I was three, and mm -hmm. what a gift to be able to give that to your kids, and not to force real estate investing on them, to but to give them these these lessons that will serve them in life and in business to own up to whatever they're doing and to think outside the box. I mean, that will serve him whether he decides to become a professional drummer or join a band or whatever he does. But to be able to know that that's how to live a good, honest life and also to see his dad really out there creating this community and also um, out there creating passive income through real estate. And, you know, I don't know how much drummers make, but <laughs> I can imagine that it's an easy life. But to, for him to know that, you know, he can do whatever he wants in life, but to be able to create that passive income mm -hmm. through something like real estate so that he can pursue his dreams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what a gift that you're giving to him. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. We'll get back to our conversation with Adam in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong experienced teams and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com invest. And now... Back to our chat with Adam Adams. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about what you're doing now. So you mentioned you're doing multifamily syndication. Tell us a little bit about that. Why multifamily? What exactly is your specialty within multifamily syndication? I know the story, but I want you to share it here. Um, and I want you to also share a couple of marketing strategies that you use in your own business, because I know you have a whole bunch of them that you're always using and so much valuable information. So share a little bit with us about that. Okay, I got it. So why multifamily, what I do within the industry and some strategies behind it. Yes. So why multifamily is multiple podcasts, episodes in and of itself. But the main one that I want to talk about is this professor with the last name Sharp mm. in 1966, uh, shows up and he starts going to medical school. Then he thinks that he needs to be an accountant. Then he thinks that he needs to be <laughs> a economist. Uh -huh. So he becomes an economist. He graduates with like a doctor's degree or whatever in economy. And he creates this thing called the Sharp Ratio, mm. which is a risk-adjusted return. He creates this thing and one thing that's that you can't do with the sharp ratio is you can't have short bursts of whatever it's called, like of knowledge or, or data. You can't mm. have short bursts of data when you're doing the sharp ratio, because if you sh try to do his ratio with a two year, it could it could show that you were like the best thing out there, mm -hmm. but really you're not, you just got lucky. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what he talks about is these 20 or 30 year long 
lengths of being able to analyze data. So what he's done and other people have done using his ratios, Mm -hmm. which is basically the overall return that you can get minus the return that you would get into something else. So the return you get in this asset class versus the non-risk return that you can get, which might be like 1% right now. Mm -hmm. And then you divide it by how volatile the thing is. So like he looks at like the S&P 500 and he says, this is the volatility. It goes way up. It goes way down. It goes way up. It goes way down. And Mm -hmm. overall it gives you like 5%. So ultimately the S&P 500 is like 0.43 on the sharp ratio. Okay. But he's looked at multifamily and it's a one point something on the sharp ratio, which basically just means it's six times more powerful than stocks. Hmm. So there's less ups, there's less downs, and there's more growth. And I also love just being able to use leverage. But of course, you can use leverage with single family. Mm-hmm. So why would we look at multifamily mm-hmm. and say, is it any better? And I love it, multifamily for multiple, multiple, multiple reasons. But if you just look at the sharp ratio alone, hmm. multifamily doubles single family. So. Hmm. If you just want to have one short point on why multifamily, mm-hmm. look up the Sharpe ratio. I don't remember the guy's whole name. It's something J or something F Sharp. Might be James F Sharp. I can't remember, but amazing story. And it's something that economists are using that data now. Financial planners are using that data now. And they're basically just trying to go, oh, should we do the S&P 500, which has a 0.43, or should we do this other thing that has a 0.48? Mm-hmm. Well, why play in that if you already know multifamily is six times stronger when using the Sharpe ratio? Interesting. Oh my gosh, I've never heard of that. I, I had no idea. I'll have to look that up. I have to use that in my my sales calls. <laughs> awesome, <Good>. awesome. <laughs> okay, okay, cool, awesome. So multifamily, and so now tell us a little bit about what you do. What do you exactly, in what you're involved in multifamily syndication, as you mentioned, what do you do? So, okay, so I have a team. We have 13 people on the team. We have that many people because we want to make sure that we don't drop any balls, mm-hmm. you know, or spinning plates. None mm-hmm. of them fall. Uh, mm-hmm. Because there's a lot, in my opinion, from my experience, when in running large multifamily deals, it needs to be treated like a business. And, you know, the more eyes you can have on something, the more delegated you can have your team, the easier it is to accomplish the thing. And as you guys, as you girls know, as mm-hmm. you women know, like you've raised millions of dollars for your deals. And there's a lot of people that want to be invested in your deals. And when that happens, we as syndicators, we just need to make sure we have a good team. So what I do in my team is only marketing and branding. The only thing that I focus on is I call it the three pillars. I want to get this out to your audience because I think this can be really helpful for them. Mm -hmm. When thinking about your brand, your Mm -hmm. personal brand, Mm -hmm. if you could use these three pillars, it's going to help you a lot. And that is going to be your platform, your, your social media, and your live events. Okay, those are the three things. The platform can be a Facebook group. It can be a podcast. It could be a YouTube channel. It could be a blog. It could be working. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Those, yeah. th- those four are good. Those yeah. four are really good platforms. Yeah. Just pick one. Mm-hmm. You got to have one. Mm-hmm. And then when we look at the uh, live events, for instance, you could host dinners or mm-hmm. you could host workshops for your passive investors, mm-hmm. or you could host conferences or you could host meetups. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's four ideas. If you want to rewind it and just write those four down, make sure you have them. I need to pick one of these, you'll say. And then the third thing is, is your social media presence. And I look at that as one of the following. Those people who do too many things at the same time, they're going to drop stuff. Mm. So pick one of these. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's LinkedIn, there's something called TikTok nowadays. <laughs> there's, um, there's, and there's bigger pockets. Mm-hmm. There's five you could write these down. Actually, take TikTok out right now. Just write <laughs> the other four down. Uh-huh. Um, and I want you to just only focus on one of those. 
And there's no wrong answer. Mm -hmm. I get tons of value from Facebook. I'm always on Facebook. I get a lot of value out of it. I, my network has grown. I've raised millions of dollars through uh, just always adding value on Facebook. But if you want to go on bigger pockets and just contribute there, that's a great way to do it. Or Instagram mm -hmm. or LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, mm -hmm. the last time I remember hearing this, LinkedIn had a typical like the normal median person was making more than six figures. Mm -hmm. So like that just doesn't happen on Facebook. Right. So if I had to burn it all down, maybe I would switch. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I focus specifically on Facebook and I'm not trying to be good at all four mm -hmm. or five platforms. I just, yeah. I just want to always be in front of the people that are on Facebook. Yeah. I think early on we were trying to do all, <laughs> we were like posting on LinkedIn and creating, you know, Instagram photos and making them really beautiful with like little quotes. And we were doing stuff on Facebook and it just, we weren't really gaining a lot of traction in any one area. And then I think last year we kind of said, screw Instagram. We haven't really been on there and we don't do LinkedIn and we've just been on Facebook and you know, have seen so many results. So I love that. Um, such a good uh, suggestion. Well, tell people because I think there's the um, with syndications, right? There's the all the SEC regulations, right? About you can't advertise deals, you can't solicit investors. So when you say that you share with people on social media through Facebook, what are you sharing? Good question. I, I share dozens of things. There's only one thing that I basically don't share is if I have a 506B as in buddy, that's, I can only share that with my buddies. I can't go <laughs> blast it out on for everybody. Right. So I got to know the person to share that. So rather than getting a 506B and doing what tons of people do, they go to meet up and they say, I can, don't say this by the way, to the <laughs> listener, don't ever say this, but they say, in a meetup. Oh, don't worry. I can raise up to 35 unaccredited for this deal. Who wants to be in it? Uh, you just can't do that. Like not with a 506 buddy, mm -hmm. you got to do it with the 506 community with the C's. You can, <laughs> then you can go out there to the community and just go and talk to people, but the buddies, that's your own friends. So anyway, uh, rather than posting a deal that is under the exemption of 506B, we're just constantly putting out their Things like, hey, we've just did this to one of our properties or, hey, uh, we, I just found out this way to cut costs for a property mm. or, hey, I just found out this. And so it's, it's just constantly teaching people things, you know, maybe mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. sharp ratio. Hey, here's the thing with the sharp ratio. Yeah. And then what's going to happen, just like you probably intuitively could see, oh, I share the sharp ratio. And then people are like, oh my gosh, why am I wasting all of this money? If it's six times stronger to be in, in multifamily, why am I putting all my money in the stock market? Mm -hmm. So you give a little bit of value there mm -hmm. and then they might just reach out to me or whoever posts it. They might just reach out to you and they say, hey, are you taking on any investors? And then all I say is, you know what? I do have a deal right now, but I, I can't take on any investors that are not, that I don't have a relationship mm -hmm. with. So why don't we start a relationship? I can get to know your financial situation. I can get to know your goals and maybe on a future deal, we could work together. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how it starts. It doesn't help. That. Yeah. I love that. I'm, we're totally going to start implementing this. I think we definitely need to add some of this to our Facebook um, strategy. Uh, so good. So, yeah. I mean, it's uh, like, um, and this was just a recent realization for me, you know, mar marketing, right? What is marketing? And people have all sorts of different notions about what marketing is. You know, it's pretty pictures, it's logos, it's, you know, it's um, flyers, it's getting the word out, you know, but at the core, marketing really is about shifting beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is through educating people, sharing these stories, like the sharp ratio, you're shifting people's existing preconceived notions and beliefs so that they can often get out of their own way and see a different way see a different way of seeing things yeah um i so. i use a lot of analogies and stories uh, a lot of times i'll use like the apple tree story i'll use dominoes stories i'll use like just 
things that I think people can resonate with. I talk about if you build it, they will come from that uh, Field of Dreams movie a long time ago. Yeah, just I loved what you said, and I, I just wanted to piggyback on it because it is all about shifting beliefs, but I don't feel like we can shift beliefs until we first resonate with the person, right. how they are now, and then stretch it. You know, first you mm-hmm. got to give them, give them what they know yeah. and then yeah. start stretching it. So you, you tell them about dominoes and you tell them like, so for like coaching and consulting, helping people do raising money or whatever. I talk about it. Like you got to strategically place dominoes out and mm-hmm. other people, they're like kind of behind the eight ball raising money at the last minute or mm-hmm. whatever. They're trying to put this domino down and they, the dominoes don't even touch mm-hmm. the dominoes won't even touch. And they're like, Oh crap. But you got to first strategically engineer the dominoes. You have to understand what the bigger picture is going to do. Then you start placing them where they need to go. And then once you push over that first domino, the whole room's going to go down. Totally. But you you got to stop going ready, fire, aim and start mm-hmm. going ready, aim, fire. Get it all prepared. Get your lead magnet going. Get your all of this stuff prepared ahead of time, which you two are probably the best in the business at. I love, I, I subscribe to your emails because I just love how you do everything. So anyone listening, whether they're <laughs> passive or whether they're active, you're going to learn so much if all you do is just keep following these two. Thanks for the plug on our own podcast, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Should we roll into the investing for good impact round? Let's do it. All right. So three questions. First one is around investing in yourself. So what is one way that your investments are helping you to live a better life? There's one way that I'll share, Mm -hmm. which I hope doesn't come on the podcast all that often, is I hire coaches and mentors. So this last six months, I've spent over $100,000 just on coaches, mentors, masterminds. Yeah. So that to me is super, super important. You'll get further, you'll get faster, you'll, you'll be able to skip the all this learning curve and so one of the ways that i invest myself is investing in coaches and mentors to get me to the next level faster how do you decide on a coach that you want to work with because obviously you're plunking down like a good chunk of change how do you just how do you make that decision do you have a vetting process or what does that look like so my executive assistant i try to call her my coo Mm -hmm. in my personal brand triple a and the way that i select people is I get a good feeling about somebody. And Mm -hmm. then I try to, I try to think about is what they have to offer going to give me more impact than Mm -hmm. the amount that I'm spending. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I get sold, then I try not to sell it to my let's just call her my COO. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like the visionary CEO type brain. And mm-hmm. she's more like the let's I'm the operations manager. I'm going to make sure that this can work with what we're doing. I'm going to make sure that this amount of money that we're spending, we're going to get back. Yeah. Um, so it's good to have that balance, yeah. and, which I think you two do really well, but anyone listening, you got to have that. So basically just what I'm trying to say is when I try to select a new coach or a mentor. I spend a lot of time with my feelings and then I spend a lot of time with my <laughs> logic. And then, and then I try to unbiasedly pass it to her and just see what, what she says about it. And if she feels really good about it, then we go. So I that's kind of that. how we do it. I love that. I, I have to say that as a male that you brought up your feelings because I <laughs> talk about that so often and I often feel like people are looking at me, well, like, well, you're a woman, you know, and it's like feelings are natural for you. And so I love that you brought that up because, you know, a lot of that, that's what we use to help guide us when we look at all the different partnerships that we do, whether it's a coach or whether it's a, you know, co-sponsor partner or, a, you know, a lead syndicator or, you know, even in my relationship with Annie looking for a business partner, it's like I sit with those feelings and I ask myself, like, what do I feel intuitively? Like, is there a certain feeling that I get? Is it a good feeling? And that has, you know, worked and served so well for me in my business and in our business and both of us looking at things like that. Um, but I love that you brought that up um, from the male perspective that you use that to help guide you. So that's awesome. Thank you. 
Um, so second question is investing in others. What is one hack that you might be able to share with our audience? And I know you've got tons of them, but what is maybe the best hack that you might be able to share investing hack um, with our audience that could help them catapult their investing career? I love this question and so many things come to mind. Yeah. So many things come to mind and I am trying to really just narrow it down to one thing. Yeah. And Basically, if if de depending on what who's your best listener, um, if you have a listener who's trying to get into running the show as a syndicator, mm -hmm. I would say that the first deal that you do is going to have an incredible amount of expenses that you didn't anticipate. So you need to have a slush fund. You need to raise a lot more mm -hmm. than the then the down payment yeah our very first deal has struggled because we raised the exact down payment and then we had a, um, a prepaid insurance mm -hmm. for a whole year mm -hmm. that we didn't anticipate came out of our pockets yeah. then we had a utility deposit came out of our pockets then we had the insurance uh went up mm -hmm. a lot higher because the previous owner was underinsured yeah. and we, we are doing the minimums for our lender and it's a lot higher. So we actually went out of pocket a lot of money mm -hmm. and that's made the deal struggle. We could have, if we were anticipating those right. costs, we could have raised the proper amount of money and just had a really good deal and never been stressed or anything like that. So yeah. that's my advice for others. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I talk about often with our investors is that when you're working with a syndicator, you want it. That's one of the things that we look for is are they raising additional capital prior to closing to ensure that they have that extra buffer? And if the answer is no, you might want to you know, think twice because it's a quick downward spiral, right? Like things go mm -hmm. wrong, unexpected things happen. Next thing you know, you can't make distributions and it's just an ugly mess. And so just yeah. as long as the deal can pencil when you're raising that extra money, they should do it. It's kind of like the responsible thing to do, you know? We're in our fourth uh, non-paying month, okay. quarter, quarter, yeah, fourth non-paying quarter. We'll probably have five mm -hmm. and it looks like it's going to turn up and, and be what we wanted it to be. But mm -hmm. there's some investors that were expecting cash flow right? and we gave them cash flow on day one. We did it another quarter. We did another quarter. And then we're like, yeah, we can't do this. Yeah. So it's been a few, it's been a few months and yeah, you're totally right. If people were doing this, this was just a 16 unit. Mm -hmm. If people were doing this on a 400 unit on their first deal or something yeah. or on a deal and they didn't raise this, this could be like a couple of million. This right. could really destroy what's trying to happen. And they must have good intentions, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But it, still, because they weren't prepared, I wasn't prepared right. on my first deal, right? I just, I hope that people resonate with that and really learn from it. So I'm curious, how did you communicate this to your investors? Well, the first quarter that we were like, hey, we can't pay this quarter, it was the hardest. Yeah. It was like my mm -hmm. kids right. earlier when yeah. they punched their brother and yeah. I'm like, you just gotta you just gotta come out and just say it. Yeah. Honesty, integrity, right? right? And so it's just a lot of like, okay, like what's happening? How do we how do we convey it? Right. Um, the first time we wanted it to be the only time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, we were getting turnover and we replaced the property manager and yeah. there's a lot of yeah. things. And so we're learned a lot on that deal, by the way, it's um, <laughs> how did we communicate this to investors? We called them personally. We sent an email. Oh, we nice. created a video. Oh, we nice. created a video that yeah. went into the embedded into the, into the email. We actually had one of seven. The first one was a small deal. We only had seven investors, but mm -hmm. we had one that was like, don't ever send me a video again. Oh no! I'll just be honest. Everybody else was like, that video is why I trust you. Right. Because I saw your face. I saw your eyes. I saw your facial expressions. Yes. I could hear the voice inflections. Yes. I, I know how you're feeling about this and I just want to keep supporting you. Right. So, that's what we did. That's and that's pretty okay. much what we had to do several quarters in a row. And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, it's not specifically turned around at the day that we're recording this. Yeah. But we 
honestly feel really good about what is going to happen when we sell it. Yeah. And I feel like how you handle these kinds of situations, that's what I tell investors all the time, you know, because it, it just could be handled so differently. And so the way that you guys are choosing to handle it is everything. And that's what's going to gain the trust. That's what means that's what's going to keep you in the business for the long run. So um, I love that. Okay. Last question. So how are your investments making the world a better place? Um, one of the things that we're trying to do is just have a really good team and be in a really, really, really good market, mm -hmm. a market that has strong fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And I feel really good about when I'm raising equity from other people mm -hmm. that they're being, they're investing in a team that's going to do everything that we can, that we have multiple people and that we're in a market that makes sense. Yeah. There's so many new syndicators right yeah. now, and mm -hmm. I'm not trying to badmouth anyone at mm -hmm. all, mm -hmm. to be honest, but what I'm trying to get across is that people are chasing cap rates, and they're, so they're going to markets that have 100,000 people or 60,000 people or 20,000 right. or 8,000 right. people or 3,000 <laughs> people that live there because they just want this cap rate. But mm -hmm. the market has no fundamentals. Their underwriting makes it look good, but yeah. it's definitely not going to perform. So how I am trying to help better the world is by sharing this knowledge mm -hmm. on my podcast, sharing this knowledge with other people, yeah. trying to help other syndicators not make those mistakes or the mistake that I made on that first. We actually made multiple mistakes on that mm -hmm. first deal, like with property management and everything. Um, but it's like every time I learn something, I try to at least be, I guess, vulnerable, mm -hmm. honest, or just share it how it is because it matters more that someone else doesn't have to go through it. Right. And if I can put my heart in sharing it with them, yeah. then I think that, th that it's more likely that they're going to, it's going to resonate with them. So how right. I'm trying to help, I'm trying to inspire other people. I'm trying to give the education and, and I'm trying to make sure that my team does it right. I love it. You're living all the values that you're teaching your kids, you're paying it forward in so many different ways. And I know, Adam, not only do you have the podcast you and you do um, syndications, you also do meetups, as you mentioned, and you also do coaching, all the things. So tell our listeners, um, because I know we've just skimmed the surface, tell our listeners where they can go to connect with you and to learn more about all the things that you're doing. We have one really good place that they could probably go to, and that's just realbluespruce.com. It's not the fake blue spruce tree. It's the real one. <laughs> just go to realbluespruce.com. That's where they can find our podcast. They can find all stuff about coaching and get my email and everything, realbluespruce.com. Perfect. We'll link to that in the show notes. Adam Adams, founder of Blue Spruce Holdings and host of the Creative Real Estate Podcast, host of meetups, host of so many things, all the things. Thank you so much, Adam, for being here with us today. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast and be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.